0: This week on Pop Culture Confidential, critic Eric Deggins on the genius of Donald Glover and a report from this year's TV Upfronts. Plus, author and writer for Conan, Laurie Martin on comedy writing in the age of President Trump.
1: He almost does the work for us, but it's not funny because it's real. We used to put monologue joke writers in a terrible, terrible position, in addition to everybody else on the planet and the planet.
0: Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for joining us here again on Pop Culture Confidential, a Spotify original. I'm Christina Yerling Biro. So the TV upfronts are a huge once-a-year event where the TV broadcast networks present their fall lineup to advertisers in the hopes of getting those large advertising dollars. Later on the show, I talked to NPR TV critic Eric Deggins about what he saw at this year's Upfronts. What are the TV trends coming up, and are the networks taking any risks or playing it safe? But first, grief after losing a loved one takes many different forms for all of us. For Emmy-nominated writer and stand-up comedian Lori Kilmartin, comedy and tweeting provided an outlet for her when she live-tweeted her father's death in 2014 when he died in hospice at home. She has written a funny and poignant book called Dead People Suck. I'm so happy to be joined by Lori Kilmartin. Now, she does not shy away from difficult subjects, not when she's performing her stand-up, not when she's writing about the death of her father, or when she's writing monologues for Conan O'Brien. I started by asking Lori what the day in the life of the Conan writing staff is like.
1: We, we usually get in around nine thirty in the morning, and we work on premises, which is just basically take, you know, scouring the news and looking for setups, looking for news stories that have you know, that feature people pe- that everyone knows or concepts that people are able to grasp pretty easily. And then we make a list of premises and we all sort of work off, off of those all day long. And we, we you know, we kind of go through that process a couple of times in terms of searching for new news stories to talk about. And um, there's two other monologue writers, uh, Rob and Brian, and we each work independently. And then we meet a couple times a day to read the jokes out loud and talk about them and figure out, you know, try to make, a, if we have a joke, that's like a B joke. We all try to, you know, make it a better joke. And, uh, we also meet with Conan a couple times a day and, uh, uh, the, our final meeting is at around, I guess, 3:45, and we put the final monologue together and it's usually between, uh, I don't know, three and 10 jokes, depending on how many sketches we have that day, uh, what the news is like. So if it's a horrible news day, we hardly do any jokes and we probably will go into like a <clears throat> higher concept or like a, a sketch or something that's just silly you know, there's, unfortunately, we have plenty of days where there's a mass shooting where everyone, oh, the whole right. country oh, that's is just you like, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, where you just like, I, you know, you can't really talk about anything because everyone's just heartbroken. And so instead of even going towards the news, you just go right to something silly and ridiculous. And Conan is like, is so great at that. But, uh, you know, sometimes he will drop the monologue on a day like that. Um, but for the most part, it's... Uh, we try we have to do Trump jokes and it's it sucks because he's the he's he's also he's a celebrity and a politician and so he's taken over both categories of news that we talk about. And it used to be, you know, you you talk about Obama and a Kardashian, but Trump is both now. And so he really dominates the news cycle in a way that nobody else has, and it's exhausting and it, it, I, I just can't wait for him to be done.
0: Yeah. How is it different writing political material now than it was under Obama, say? Well, I say
1: I, I like Bush and Obama were Bush was really I mean, I wasn't writing. I wasn't writing for Conan during the Bush years. I came on during Obama years. But I do know Bush was just so he was fun to make fun of, you know, even, you know, however, his, however you feel the presidency was, you know, he at least he, he seemed kind of dumb. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, you had, uh, you had the Darth Vader uh, character of Dick Cheney working behind the scenes. So you had like these archetypes to kind of play with. Obama was always tough to make fun of because he was, you know, he's a, he's an icon. He's the first African American and he's also very cool. You know, he, he seemed like he would be you could almost be a monologue joke writer. Right.
0: He's in he, tech with the, with pop culture zeitgeist yes. somehow.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so he was really tough to nail. It's almost like the, we had a better, like making fun of people's reaction to Obama than Obama himself. Interesting. Um, and that, you know, like Fox news or, you know, and, and people's reaction to Obama was, you know, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> if you, you know, from Republicans to the media to, you know, whatever. Um, and then Trump is, is so over the top that it's hard to come up with a, any sort of exaggeration that makes fun of him. You know, mm-hmm. he, he himself, yeah, like he, he almost does the work for us, but it's not funny because it's real. It really is. And he's put, he's put monologue joke writers in a terrible, terrible position in, in addition to everybody else on the planet and the planet.
0: <laughs> And in, in the talk show landscape that is today, what what is sort of what does Conan O'Brien want to focus on the most? I mean, how much political comedy does one do? What what is how, where does he see himself and where do you guys see yourself in the comedy landscape of late night?
1: I feel like and I, I think his directive has been we're not we're not a political comedy show, you know, and I, I, it's hard not to take sides in a joke, you know, you're. You're always going to be making fun of the politician, um, but we're we're not um, we're we're like a silly show, you know. And and even our political jokes, our, our audience isn't, you know. If I, when I watch The Daily Show or John Oliver, they're in a way they're really lucky because their audience is very in tune with politics, so they can do a joke about a bill that's passing or you know a lesser politician and the entire audience will know who they're talking about. You know, they could talk about Adam Schiff, for example, who's, uh, you know, a, a Democratic representative on the House Intel Committee and their crowd would know it and our crowd wouldn't. So we can't talk about that. Like even if there's a huge Adam Schiff story, we have to wait a couple days before everyone's in on the news cycle before we talk about it. So we kind of don't go for those tinier stories. So we just we kind of hit the bigger stories a little more broadly, I think, and then move on to silly stuff. That's kind of what I think that's always been Conan's strength and um, what makes him really unique. And I think he just likes to keep doing that. I, I, I think he he's a very, very unique voice. And the fact that he keeps listening to his own voice and not being, you know, influenced by by kind of the, the, I guess, the trend toward partisan comedy is, I think, really at And I think it's a, it could, you know, a relief to people. At some point, you're just tired of hearing, hearing that stuff, I think, sometimes, you know.
0: So a few years back, while going through the difficult process of caring for your dying father, you live tweeted this experience and you got a huge response. You've also written the book Dead People Suck. First of all, my condolences on the death of your father.
1: Thank you. It's it's been a couple years now, so it's you know I'm I'm used to it, but uh, but thank you nonetheless.
0: Tell me about your father.
1: Oh gosh, he his name was Ron, and he was an engineer, and he um, worked overseas quite a bit um, during his life. He was a dog lover. He was super Catholic he was right wing, but he was also the nicest guy you've ever met. Um, and so he's, he, it's hard to draw a picture of him, um, through just a couple of adjectives, but my dad was really, really loved and he was a, a great father and he, he loved my sister and I, uh, completely, you know, and, and it, so when he passed away, it was, it was um, a huge loss, but it wasn't super complicated. You know, I I, I really, really uh, had a, a great relationship with him. He went on the road with me sometimes.
0: Was it a spur of the moment decision for you to start tweeting something so personal that what was going on at the hospice?
1: It was. It, you know, it, it's it's weird. Like I always tweet things that are personal, but my life is pretty boring. So it's, it's like, oh, this lattes taking too long. <laughs> like that was, that was my personal life before my dad started dying. <laughs> and then, um, he came home and our home was turned into a hospice center for him. I just started commenting on that, you know, and on that surreal situation. And then all the feelings that came after it. Um, and it, for me, I guess, cause I've just been writing jokes for so long, it's the automatic way I process any emotion or any, any event.
0: Mm-hmm. What kind of reactions did you get from people at the beginning?
1: Um, mostly good. People had either been through it oh, or they were curious about it because their parents were getting older. And so it seems it seemed to be either people peering into their own future or looking back at their past. Um, I The two negative th- comments I got were both reporters from Al Jazeera, which Ooh. was really strange, mm-hmm. <laughs> like of all places. But, um, you know, other than that, I didn't get too much blowback for it.
0: And what did you learn about how other people react to you or to react to someone in grief?
1: I didn't feel a self-consciousness about how to grieve. I think because I had already been joking about my dad's cancer on stage when he was alive. Um, I was sort of used to people being aghast a little bit at a joke. So it's (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it didn't shock me when it happened after he died. And um, and I realize now that part of it was I wasn't used to saying it or speaking about such, you know, deep matters. And now, you know, I can do jokes about my dad dying in the middle of a regular set at a comedy club and it's no big deal. It's really weird how I, I thought, oh, this is such a heavy topic. You know, maybe it's hard to do on a, you know, on a Friday night late show where the crowd's half drunk. And now I'm like, no, oh, it's actually my comfort level with the topic. Right. right.
0: Um, finally, I want to ask you. Oh, I think it was a couple of years ago, I heard an interview with you where you said something very interesting that when you were on tour in the sort of early years of your stand up, um, you never, you sort of met the other women, female comedians afterwards because you guys were never booked on the same tour at the same time because, well, that would be too many women <laughs> for the nice. comedy tour, apparently. So you were only booked one at a time on the different gigs. Um, has anything changed? Have things changed for female stand up comedians um, during your years? I guess it's since the 80s you were, have been working. Yeah, in, I started right? in 87.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I've met a lot of women just that, I've, that I came up with. We came up at the same time, but we never worked together. And so I, I would go to a comedy club and I see their headshots on the wall and I'm like, I know they exist. <laughs> <laughs> and I know one of them was here last month, you know, and there's, you know, usually one female comic a month out of, you know, 12 possible spots. So oh, generous. Um, yeah, that, that's that's being generous too. I don't even think it was that high in the 80s and 90s. Um, it was like the club owners are like, Oh, our audiences can't take it, you know, we'll have one every every six months. And you know, that'll satisfy them. Um, and now I think the I think the audience is demanding a diversity of the lineup, you know, I, and if I were a white male comic, I would demand to be on a show with a black comic, a female comic, an Asian comic, anyone who wasn't like me, you know, you stand out more if you're the only one of you on a lineup. And if you're the third white guy to go up and talk about dating, you're going to be boring. You know, if you're the first one, it's interesting, especially if you're the first one after a woman who's talked about dating or, you know what I mean? So, um, but have they gotten I, I,
0: this, the white male comics?
1: Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, it's not, it's more the club owners that have, that have to get it. And I think, you know, there's definitely some holdovers from the 90s that are just clinging to what little power they have left. But there's a, a lot of new club owners that are that like comedy and they like, you know, they like diversity and they and it brings in a better audience, too.
0: Well, Lori, thank you so much for your time. This was so interesting.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate
0: it. Thank you so much to Lori Kilmartin. Her new book is called Dead People Suck. And now, I'm very happy to have NPR TV critic Eric Deggins with us again. He has a fresh report on what he saw at this year's TV Upfronts, where the TV broadcast networks introduce their fall lineup. And just to let you know, the interview with Mr. Deggins was done before Tuesday's news about the Roseanne reboot getting cancelled because of her racist tweets. A statement from ABC's entertainment president read, Roseanne's Twitter statement is abhorrent, repugnant, and inconsistent with our values. We have decided to cancel her show. Mr. Deggins, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Thank you for having me. So there seems to be two different worlds uh, between the sort of streaming services, HBO, Netflix, Hulu, and the broadcast networks. Did you see anything at the upfronts that show how the networks are sort of dealing with this new zeitgeist?
2: Um, I think the networks are basically doubling down on what has worked for them over the last couple of seasons, especially over the last season. I've sensed, in in looking at what the the TV shows that have worked in that time, there there seems to be a desire for a little bit of comfort food for TV viewers. Ah. Uh, So uh, I think that's one reason why reboots are doing well. They remind people of a, a simpler time. And, you know, that nostalgia is something that they're enjoying. And it sort of takes your mind off of how crazy the contemporary news cycle can be. And, and you know, you look at uh, heartwarming dramas like This Is Us and, and The Good Doctor, uh, those were big hits over the last couple of years too. And so there's a there's sense that shows that kind of tweak your emotions that are kind of tear-jerkers, that are a, a little sentimental are shows that seem to be resonating with people. So when you look at what happened at the upfronts, there's several dramas that sort of fit that mold. You know, ABC has this drama uh, about uh, a group of friends who suddenly reevaluate their life after one of them commits suicide. It's called uh, A Million Little Things. Uh, you know, really sen- sentimental. There's um, there's a show on CBS, I think it is, that's about a, a guy who is has always been an atheist who suddenly finds God speaking to him through social media. It's called God Friended Me.
0: Whoa, whoa, what a premise.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's really—well, you know, the way—I I haven't seen the pilot. I've just seen the presentation reel— Uh, which is about five uh, minutes or so but you you can't really tell if it's somebody messing with him or if it's actually god but when things start to happen in his life he he assumes that it's a a higher power who's speaking to him i thought i had it all figured out but then something happened and it changed my life forever i got a friend request from god (laughs) what let me get this straight. You're being catfished by someone calling themselves God on Facebook. Yes, and I need your more hacker skills to give me their IP and address.
0: keep your voice. How many times do I gotta tell you I'm not a hacker, okay? I'm a video game enthusiast.
2: You can't have one foot in the eternal plane. You either believe or you don't.
0: Or
1: you recognize that there's something greater at work here. I don't know, some grand design connecting us all?
2: Wait a minute. You don't think Dad is behind this, do you?
0: Really, Miles? He can't even use Netflix.
2: And 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 so you get stuff like that. Combined with, you know, CBS is redoing Murphy Brown and Magnum PI and, uh, and, and Roseanne is coming back as a big success for ABC. And I think in the fall, we'll have a situation where, um, you know, every network will have at least one major reboot on its schedule from Well and Grace on NBC to, um, uh, to Lethal Weapon on Fox. CBS has a lot of them with, uh, you know, Hawaii Five-0 and MacGyver and all that stuff along with Magnum PI. And, uh, and Murphy Brown and ABC, of course, has Roseanne. So, so there's, there's a real strong current of heartwarming dramas and comedies and reboots.
0: And of course, these reboots in, in a landscape where it's really hard to sort of market new shows, I guess it's easy to, easier to get people to understand the marketing around these shows.
2: Well, I, I think the other thing that we saw in the upfronts is that the behind-the-scenes uh, business structure of how things worked had a, had a big influence. So the reboots make sense not only because they're familiar brands to people, but because the networks already own the intellectual property.
0: What about a show like Roseanne, which um, caused a stir with its politics when it came back? Is of more of that type of show coming?
2: We didn't see a lot in this year's Upfront, except for the fact that Fox picked up Last Man Standing, which uh, features a character who's openly conservative and cracks jokes about Hillary Clinton and Democrats. We may may see that. I, I think the networks are being more careful. And what they're doing is trying to present shows that talk about environments, that talk about you know, where, where people are living, you know, not so much like a direct commentary on Trump that doesn't seem to to work very well for most shows. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if they can, but if they can create a show that sort of gives you the feeling that you're watching an average family, uh, work out their problems, uh, then that's, that's a, that's an environment that you can kind of, you can tell a lot of different stories there. Now, I would not be surprised to see some shows like that, uh, next fall, uh, maybe even by mid season.
0: And are the broadcast networks taking uh, diversity and representation seriously? Did you see, find that at the upfront?
2: Yeah, they, they, they really are. There there was a lot of diversity in uh, the shows that got picked up. And in particular, what I noticed was that there were several shows that featured uh, Latino characters. CBS's uh, Magnum PI reboot stars Jay Hernandez. ABC picked up uh, a uh, English-language version of a Spanish soap opera called uh, The Grand Hotel. It's executive produced by Eva Longoria and it stars uh, Demian Bashir. Uh, And it's about a uh, Hispanic family that owns a a hotel in South Beach.
1: You know dad hates it when you hook up with the guests.
2: Added bonus. I saw you playing nice with the evil stepsisters over there.
1: They're harmless if you just ignore the hideous things they say. But I'm not thrilled about dad's new wife.
0: Who's that? Boss man's daughter, Alicia, otherwise known as Off Limits. Danny, let's go. I know you're loyal to the staff, your people.
1: I thought they were our people.
0: The hotel is failing, it's a money pit.
1: We're gonna pay back the bank.
0: It's not the bank we owe. Nothing bad ever happens at the Riviera Grande, and you know?
2: There's a mid season comedy uh, at NBC. Uh, that's supposed to be like a new school version of Cheers, uh, called uh, Abbeys, where the the Abbey in the title is Latina.
0: Is that Michael? Sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And uh, there was one other show, The Charmed uh, reboot on the CW, features uh, a, a Latina family.
0: Interesting that they're doing so many reboots with diversity. I think.
2: Yeah. Well, I, you know, one thing I do think is that uh, an easy way to reinvent a show is to take the lead character and tweak either the gender or the ethnicity. So, you know, we saw that, for example, uh, in Star Trek Discovery, where, you know, for the first time, they centered a Star Trek series on an African-American woman. You know, African-American female character. And and in SWAT, uh, you know, when CBS uh, rebooted SWAT, they made Hondo, the lead character, uh, an African-American male. So that's something that CBS in particular has been uh, experimenting with for the last couple of years. If you do it authentically, you know, if you do it in a way that you're respectful of the culture that you're depicting, then it is a gateway into a whole other... Uh, area of storytelling just because the world is going to react differently to a Magnum PI who is Latino um, The world is going to react differently to an LAPD SWAT officer who is African-American and, and as long as they handle it, right? I think that can be uh, really inspired It's just it, it, if it starts to feel like a gimmick and they don't really make right. you know the whole environment authentically changed that's 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 when you have problems. Uh, so so there's some there's some interesting stuff coming, but it's it's, it's again like we said they're playing it safe. It's not particularly groundbreaking. So I you know there's no show where I'm like boy you know I can't wait to I can't wait to see that. Although I, I think there will be shows that will be sort of uh, quiet surprises and and uh, so so I'm going to be on the lookout for those when I start to actually watch the pilots. All
0: right. I just want to take two or three minutes to talk about someone who has been uh, groundbreaking because I saw a very interesting panel with you um, a couple of days ago about Childish Gambino, Donald Glover, who really broke through in, all, in television from community to his marvelous Atlanta f- and his music career that is sort of culminating in this incredible um, video, This is America. What is sort of the genius of Donald Glover, would you say?
2: The genius of Donald Glover, number one, is that he does so many things at a, at a high level, you know? Um, he's not the world's best rapper. He's not the world's best singer. He's not the world's best comedic actor. But he does all of those things at a, a pretty high level, and, and he always seems to be coming up with new talents. I mean, I don't know if I'm late to the game, but I didn't realize he could dance until I saw this this video. And so he's, um, he's he's multi-talented, and it's always impressive to watch someone who is good at a lot of different things, doing all those different things in different venues. But with This Is America, he's created um, a video that is affecting and also ambiguous enough that you can come to it, and you can watch it, and you can come away with your own sense of what you think it means. And... And and I think that's important because we're in a world where, um, you know, everybody wants everything explained to them. They want everything simplified. Um, You know, Donald Glover has refused to do that in a lot of his art. Uh, And he's he's taken a lot of big swings, done things that are very ambitious, and then sort of said to people, well, I'm not going to tell you what this means. You guys get to figure out what this means, and and this is a, this is America as sort of the ultimate expression of that, where he's created a, a video that seems to have a lot of imagery in it uh, tied to a lot of interesting concepts. You know, he's he's striking poses that remind you of the old Jim Crow character uh, from minstrelsy. He's creating these visual situations where he's. Where he uses a gun uh, first to kill a, a black man who has a bag over his head, and then to uh, he, uh, to kill a, a black choir, and both times after he uses the weapon, he hands it off to someone who has this this red cloth, and they kind of gingerly, lovingly take the the weapon from him, and he goes on to dance, you know, while the chorus, you know, "This is America" sort of rings in your head, and and it feels like he's saying to us, you know, this is America's fetish for guns and the gun violence that that often produces. He seems to be saying that black people in America, no matter how much we celebrate, no matter how much we want to enjoy life, no matter how many great things uh, we create with our creativity and our, our knowledge, we're never more than a step or two away from horrific violence and death. And in fact, it can come from our own people it can come from people who look like us. And so, you know, that's some of the messages that I got out of it, got out of it, and that uh, other people seem to have gotten out of it, but he hasn't definitively said what he's saying, what that what that video means, and he's he's letting us all have this really intense conversation about what he seems to be trying to say and what that means in terms of what's going on in America. And that's what an artist is really supposed to do, is 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 present this material that asks really provocative questions of the people who experience it and 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 pushes them uh, to interrogate those questions uh in a larger context and 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 so what i love about donald glover is that on the one hand you can just listen to this as america and it's just like a banging track and you can just enjoy it or you can watch the video And you can engage with what he seems to be trying to say on a much deeper level and uh, and really have a a substantive conversation about where we are in America with all these different things. And that's what an artist does.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting how he can move from different sort of very mainstream pop culture to this incredible art that is just a punch in the gut where I had to watch I don't know how many times I've, I've watched that video just because there's new things all the time.
2: There's always this uh, hope and fantasy that if you come across a unique voice uh, if you give that voice the resources and the access to all the highest levels in show business that they'll produce this transformative art that they'll that they'll take things to the next level. And, uh, you know, Donald Glover seems to be doing that. You know, when FX gave him a TV show, he created a TV show that was unlike any other that said things about black culture and black people that nobody else was saying. And, uh, you know, he's uh, and and now that he has access to all of the highest levels of the music industry, he's created a song and a video um, that also does the same thing. And so it's refreshing to see, and, and encouraging to see, you know, a young artist who, you know, when they're when they're given their moment, you know, makes the most of it. And I think that is the most exciting thing about Donald Glover right now, is that there's a sense that they're wa- that we're watching this really um, talented person kind of make the most of the opportunities that they're being given which is sort of like the showbiz hollywood fantasy now you know some people think he's overrated and 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 uh there's always going to be people who sort of uh pull back from the 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 uh universal the near universal admiration that he seems to be getting now but i've you know i've tried to be careful about that as a critic and i've tried to say to myself you know am i hopping on a bandwagon or is he really doing stuff that moves me and 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 you know i I, personally, he is, he's doing stuff that moves me and seems to be saying something substantive. It is great to see Donald Glover doing this singular work and people really responding to it. And, and, and when the, the, uh, the biggest question you can ask is, boy, I can't wait to see what he does next. What's he going to do next? You know, that's the best position, uh, I think, for an artist to be in, um, even though it's also the scariest one.
0: Mr. Deggins, thank you so much again for this interesting conversation. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, no problem. It was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you so much to Mr. Eric Deggins. You can follow him on Twitter at Deggins, D E G G A N S. And thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at popcultureconfidential and on Twitter at podpopculture. And make sure to catch us next week, only on Spotify.
2: Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greenie.
1: I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable, given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking Uh. about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't
0: eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty (laughs) green. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants.